There's a point in the film The Lord of the Rings where two of the main characters, Frodo and Sam, are heading off on their great quest. And suddenly Sam stops walking and says, This is it. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home that I've ever been. He's a character who would like nothing more than a quiet life. To never leave home. He's not one for choosing to go off on adventures. And you can feel just what a big step it is for him. To leave behind everything that's familiar. And take a step into the unknown. And that's pretty similar to Jacob in this chapter. In verse 1 he's begun his journey towards Egypt. And he's reached Beersheba. It was the place he had been brought up, Beersheba, and it was also on the southern edge of the promised land. And once Jacob goes south of Beersheba, he'll be outside the promised land, and it will be a momentous step. Never in all his long life will he have been further south than that. And that's first step farther than he's ever been before will just be the first step of a long journey to Egypt to borrow words of Joshua many years later he has not gone this way before and it's at this point that the Lord appears to him and says do not be afraid to go down to Egypt the fact that God tells him not to be afraid tells us doesn't it that he was afraid And it's not hard to think of reasons why. Sometimes we hear of older people having to leave the home they've lived in all their lives in order to downsize. And we think of the strain that will be on them. And that's true even if geographically they're not moving far. They might still be in the same town. But we know that at the stage of life they're at it won't be easy. Never mind if they had to uproot completely and move to a foreign country they'd never been before. But that's what Jacob is being called to do here. We know from the next chapter that he's 130 years old at this point. Charles Spurgeon says here that Jacob was always anxious and in his old age more so than ever. Maybe you've known people like that. Always anxious but in their old age more so than ever but of course there's a deeper reason why Jacob is afraid to go down to Egypt other than that it would be a big change for anyone and that's because he would be leaving not just his homeland but the promised land the land God had promised to give to the descendants of his grandfather Abraham God had called Abraham to leave his homeland all those years ago and come to Canaan and promised that he would give the land to his descendants but now Jacob is is about to leave that land so would he be walking away from the promises of God certainly given what God seems to be doing in his providence it makes sense to go to Egypt Joseph is alive he's in Egypt and has sent wagons to to bring Jacob and the family there in light of all that staying in famine struck Canaan would seem seem foolish it seems a no brainer uh, to leave the land of famine for the land of plenty 
And yet Jacob knew from the experience of both his father and his grandfather that going down to Egypt didn't tend to be a good idea. Many years ago when there had been a famine in the land, Abraham had gone down to Egypt. And what had he done there? Well, he lied about his wife being his sister. And only God's grace stopped the whole thing being a complete disaster. And then in Jacob's father's day, Isaac, another occasion of famine, God appeared to Isaac and told him, do not go down to Egypt. So, so here's a man, his grandfather has gone down to Egypt. It's been almost a complete disaster. His father has been specifically warned not to go down to Egypt. But here Jacob finds himself apparently with no other option than to head to Egypt. And so with all those doubts swirling around in his mind, Jacob stops at Beersheba and he offers sacrifices to God. His doubts and his confusion, they don't keep him away from worship, but rather they drive him to worship. His doubts and his confusion, they don't keep him away from worship, but rather they drive him to worship. And as we we sang in our opening psalm, it's only when we go to the sanctuary that we start seeing things clearly. Why? Because that's a place where God speaks to us. A vision in itself would mean nothing if it wasn't accompanied by a word from the Lord. The fact that God here is called the God of his father Isaac, it brings to mind God's covenant promises And Jacob hasn't forgotten those promises. Even if he's pretty apprehensive about how they're going to be fulfilled. But God appears to him to reassure him. And in God's providence morning and evening today. We've come to two of those special occasions where God calls someone by name. And then repeats it. This morning it was Saul, Saul. Tonight it's Jacob, Jacob, just as God had once called Abraham, Abraham, just as the Lord Jesus would later say, Martha, Martha. Perhaps you're fearful about something tonight, maybe something coming tomorrow, or in the week ahead, the month ahead, and you think, if only the Lord were to call me by name like this, I wouldn't be afraid anymore. Do you think that God doesn't know your name? He knows your name tonight. You're not just a face in the crowd to him. The Lord calls Jacob by name just as Jesus calls his sheep by name. And then the Lord goes on to give Jacob two reasons why he's not to be afraid. Two reasons why he doesn't need to be afraid. There are two reasons that are just as relevant for us tonight. And the first reason not to be afraid is that what's happening to you doesn't mean that God's plan has gone wrong. What's happening to you doesn't mean that God's plan has gone wrong. God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation and give him the promised land. 
And in Jacob's lifetime, Jacob had seen little shoots of growth, which suggested that against all the odds, that that might actually be coming to pass. Despite the, the mess of Jacob having two wives and two concubines and all the grief that it had brought in, it also brought 12 sons and a total of 70 descendants who are listed in the second half of the chapter. But now this growing family is leaving the promised land. How does that make any sense? Just when, when it looks like they, they, they might actually have a people, they're leaving the land. But God speaks to Jacob in verse 3 to solve the conundrum. Do not be afraid to go down into Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Do you notice that the new thing that Jacob is being told here? The, the new bit, the, the new revelation, it, it's not that God will make them into a great nation. It, he knew that, but the new bit is that God will do it there. God will do it in Egypt. Yes, God had said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. But God hadn't told Abraham where that would be or when it would be. But now he's telling Jacob it will happen in Egypt and it's going to start right now. Having God's people leave the promised land just as they were starting to to develop into the seeds of a nation. It seemed so unlikely. But it had been part of God's plan all along, and that plan hadn't gone wrong. And perhaps there's someone here tonight who particularly needs to hear that. Maybe you've recently become a Christian, and your life seems to have got a lot harder. But even though what's happening to you isn't what you would have chosen, you can be sure that God's plan for you hasn't gone wrong. Or perhaps tonight your your life just isn't really where you thought it would be at the age that you are now. Jacob's visions for himself as a 130-year-old, if he ever thought he would reach that age, they certainly didn't include a one-way ticket to Egypt It's not how he envisaged his final years being played out. And yet, despite what it looked like, God reassures him that nothing has gone wrong. Perhaps there are things that you see coming down the road in your life that you never anticipated having to face. Perhaps you just thought they'd never happen, or perhaps you thought, well, maybe they'll happen one day, but I'll be dead and gone by then. And yet, yet now you, you see it coming right at you. But even if that thing wasn't in your plans, it has always been in God's plans. Egypt was always part of God's plan for Jacob. Even if it wasn't part of Jacob's plan for Jacob. We have wonderful plans for, for our lives, but... But God has even better plans, even if they're not the ones we would have chosen. And so however unplanned or unwelcome these events, they all come from the hand of a sovereign God. But not just a sovereign God, also a good God, a good God. These plans are for our good. It's a while ago now since we looked at Genesis 38 together. 
But if you remember, it's that chapter, not that far into the Joseph story, which isn't actually about Joseph at all, but rather it's about Joseph's older brother Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. And it records rather sordid events about Judah's refusal to give her his son and then her dressing up as a prostitute and getting pregnant by him. And one of the big questions we thought about at the time was why? Why interrupt the Joseph story in order to tell us that? And the answer we saw at the time was the danger that God's people were going to become just like the Canaanites. The danger that they would intermarry with them just as Judah had done and that the godly line would be extinguished. And so the family of promise need to be taken away from Canaan for a while until they can get established before they completely blend in with the people around them. And so when 130 year old Jacob and his children and their wives leave Canaan, it's not just because the famine has left them no option, but it's because this is what God has planned to do for their spiritual good. In fact, some see the, the opening verses of this chapter and the language used there as similar to the language of chapter 6. Uh, chapter 6 of Genesis, there the people and animals go into the ark. Here the people and the livestock go into Egypt. And there are repeated phrases, into the ark, into Egypt. And here in this chapter, no one is missing out of God's chosen family. Just as all Noah's relatives went into the ark, so here all Jacob's relatives go into Egypt. But whether we, we go with that or not, in this journey, Israel is beginning the journey into the unlikely safety of Egypt. Someone has said, the hope of the world is going to be lodged in the ark of Egypt and I love that phrase the, the hope of the world you picture that this motley crew uh, I read out their names earlier some with very checkered pasts they certainly don't look like the hope of the world if you had been been watching them all go past and someone had told you that this is the hope of the world, you'd think, well, there's not much hope for the world. If this is the hope of the world, if this is the hope of the world, we're in trouble. And yet this is a family that God had sent to bless the nations. This is a family through whom the Savior would be born. And that's important to remember because for a long time now we've been focusing in on this one family. Uh, particularly on Joseph and his brothers. But let's never forget the reason for the Bible's focus. Let's never forget that the very reason God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans was for the sake of the nations of the world who would be blessed through him and his descendants. The very reason that God went narrow in the book of Genesis and in the Old Testament as a whole is so that one day he could go wide. Uh, as he prepares in the Old Testament the one nation through whom the Messiah would come. Uh, as he drills into them in the midst of all the, the nations who worship so many idols that there is only one true God. And he's not to be worshipped the way the nations around them do. And as he prepares them for the Messiah who would come. 
God went narrow. He focused in on this one family in order to bless the nations. It seems strange to us. Why, why send the chosen people down to Egypt? But even though Jacob wouldn't have chosen it, it had been God's plan all along. And you can have the same confidence tonight. Whatever's happening to you, even if you would never have chosen it, it doesn't mean that God's plan has gone wrong. And in fact, the very things that you would never have chosen are going to work out for your ultimate good. So firstly this morning, what's happened to you doesn't mean that God's plan has gone wrong. But then secondly tonight, no matter what happens, God will be with you. No matter what happens, God will be with you. I came across an article by my, my uh, ministerial hero, J.P. Struthers, during the last week. It's one that he wrote when he was still minister down the road in, in Whithorn. Uh, I think this is probably 1880s or so. Uh, and it was entitled, How Many Promises Are There in the Bible? He had come across a paragraph in an old newspaper that said there were 38,000 promises in the Bible. And so he'd been trying to get some of the, the boys and girls in his Bible class to pick a book of the Bible each and go through it and count up all the promises. Because uh, he wanted to try and verify this fact. But, but they soon gave up uh, because they found it was actually quite hard to define what a promise was. Well, anyway, 38,000 is a pretty unlikely number. There are only 31,000 verses in the whole Bible. Uh, somebody tried to count all, up all the promises more recently, came up with a number of almost 9,000. Uh, it's still lots and lots of promises. And of those, however many thousand promises there are in the Bible, which one do you think occurs most often? Which promise occurs most often in the Bible? Well, I, I haven't counted them, but, but it is said, and I have no reason to doubt it, that the most frequent promise in the Bible is, I will be with you. I will be with you. What about the most frequent command in the Bible? Again, it's said, and I have no reason to doubt, that the most frequent command in the Bible is, do not be afraid. The most frequent promise, I will be with you. The most frequent command, do not be afraid. And if those statistics are true, then here in verses 3 and 4, we have the most frequent command in the Bible, followed by the most frequent promise. Verse 3, do not be afraid. And verse 4, I myself will go down with you. And isn't it significant that those two things come together? Because what does that tell us? It tells us, doesn't it, that we don't have to be afraid because God is with us. People say to us, it may never happen, but it may happen, and yet God will always be with us. And in fact, God had combined both of these things when, it, when he had spoken to Jacob's father Isaac back in chapter 26, verse 24. Fear not. Why? For I am with you. 
And Jacob could look back and know that God had been with his father and that God had been with his grandfather and God hadn't let them down. And so no doubt part of the reason that the Lord calls himself in verse 3 the God of your father is to remind Jacob of that. That God has a track record of not letting his people down. And that track record is unblemished down to this very day. Which Christian is there who has ever lived that can say, well, God, let me down. And so we too can be confident that God will be with us in our changing circumstances. Think of the gods that the other nations worshipped at this time. They they were local deities, we could call them. They, They weren't even gods of whole countries. Some of them were gods of the hills. Others were gods of the valleys. But the true God isn't tied to one place. He can equally well be with his people and provide for them in Egypt as he can in Canaan. Yes, Canaan, the promised land, it still one day will be their destination. But in the meantime, God will be with them wherever they go. The true God isn't tied to one place. Maybe you think it'd be easier to be a Christian in this place. But God, the true God, he's not tied to any one particular place. And what a reminder here that God will be with us in the changing circumstances of our lives. Even if it's situations we could never have envisaged, like 130-year-old Jacob leaving for Egypt. God will be with us. And he will be with us right up until the moment of death. At which point, well, he'll not stop being with us, but he will usher us into his immediate presence. And no doubt at his time of life, Jacob wasn't simply fearful of living in a foreign land, but he was fearful of dying in a foreign land, surrounded by who knows what. But look at God's kindness and care for this elderly and anxious saint as he tells him in verse 4. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You know, it would have been enough just for God to tell Jacob, I will be with you. But, but he just adds this to, to reassure this elderly saint. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. In other words, he will die with his beloved son at his bedside. One minute he would see Joseph and the next minute he would see Jesus. The one who Joseph has been pointing us to the whole time. And surely knowing that Joseph would close his eyes would take the sting out of death for Jacob. After all these years thinking Joseph was dead, to to know that Joseph would be there to close his eyes when he breathed his last, that would take the sting out of death for Jacob. As he says right at the end of the last chapter, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go out and see him before I die. Joseph, the, the type of Christ, would take the sting out of death for Jacob. And for us, knowing Christ himself, knowing the one who Joseph pointed to, will take the sting out of death for us. 
Because what's the, the sting of death? Well, it's sin. And for the Christian, death has lost its sting. Because our sin has been dealt with once and for all at the cross. And in those last moments, God won't leave us. When, humanly speaking, we are beyond hope, we won't be alone. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. But what about this list of names here in Genesis 46 uh, that, that takes up so much of the chapter? This list of names that, that seems about it as relevant to us as reading someone else's family tree. But doesn't a family tree take on new significance if we realise that it's our own family? And that's what this is. It is our family tree, our family history. Because as Christians, in the words of Romans 11, we have been grafted into the family tree of Abraham. We're united by faith with those who've gone before. Those who served the same God, trusted in the same promises and believed in the same Messiah. And so this list of names is the roll call of the church at the time. The people of God who had come from elderly Abraham and barren Sarah in just two generations. Well look at them now. Those who first heard this list of names read out loud. Name after name after name. They wouldn't have thought well man this is a bit boring. They would have thought look at what God has done. In two generations look at what God has done. And can we not say the same today as we look around at the hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who make up the church of Jesus Christ right around the world? Can we not look at them and say, look what God has done, what we would not have thought possible? If the, the names of all the Christians in the world today was read out, well, well it would take a, a long, long time. And most of those individual names, almost all of them, 99.9%, they wouldn't mean anything to us. But surely the overall impact of it would be how amazing God is. And the one thing that would strike us about that list is how diverse it would be. People from different countries, different nationalities, different ages, rich, poor, educated, uneducated and uh, the list in this chapter is pretty diverse as well. Yes, they're all from one family group. But already there's diversity. You have the, the powerful and the influential like Joseph. And you have others who were nobodies in the world's eyes. Jaziel, Guni, Jetzer and Shilam. Or any of the others in this list in Genesis 46 that, that are, are never mentioned in scripture again. And many of the people in this list came with a, a bit of a past, a bit of a history. You have Jacob with his history of deception, Judah with his history of sexual sin. But one commentator says it's the same in the church. 
In God's providence, you may be from an inbred redneck family like Perez and Zira, or one of the kids from a big city biracial marriage like Ephraim and Manasseh. It doesn't matter. Everyone who loves Jesus is welcome in God's family. Everyone who loves Jesus is welcome in God's family. I think if we're being honest, sometimes we might prefer if the church was less diverse. In our best moments, hopefully most of the time, we would rather uh, that the church was, was more diverse. But sometimes we might prefer if it, if it was less diverse. If, if more people in the congregation just thought like us and were in the same wavelength as us and reacted to situations in the same way that we did, well, that, 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 would, that would be easy. But if the church of God is the family of God. Well, people in families are very different, aren't they? And I think it reminds us as well not to expect perfection. Is your family perfect? Well, the church isn't perfect either. Does the fact that your family isn't perfect mean that you give up on them? Well, no. And it should be the same with the church. Now, yes, of course, we should expect more from our, our spiritual family than we do from our, our physical family if they're not believers. But we shouldn't expect perfection. And just as we close tonight, I think the biggest impression that we're meant to get from this list is the completeness of it. Seventy is one of those numbers in the Bible that is very significant. And I think this list is arranged in such a way to give that total. Yes, it is a total number, but, but on a list like this, you could total it up in different ways. Uh, for example, you, you could count the, the in-laws, uh, the, the daughters-in-law, which were told that, that they're not included. Or you can just have the direct descendants. But it seems to have been counted in such a way to give us this total of 70. Seven, the number of perfection, multiplied by ten, the number of completeness. And that tells us that of the number who reached their destination, not one of them was lost. They all made it. They all made it to their destination. None of them would have looked around when they got there and said, where's so-and-so? They all made it. And it's a reminder to us that all of Jesus' true people will make it to the end. However unlikely that might look at times, however much we might wonder whether we will make it, Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Will you? fall short of heaven if your trust is in Christ will only if Jesus loses you and that's not going to happen the full number of Jacob's descendants make it out of the land of famine and into the land of plenty not because they deserve to but because of whose family they're part of and because their brother has gone ahead of them and it will be exactly the same for us 
If we're trusting in Jesus, then one day we too will make it out of the land of famine and will make it into the land of plenty. Not because we deserve to, but because through faith in him we're part of the family of God and because our elder brother has gone ahead of us. You know, it wouldn't just have been Jacob who would have been daunted about going to Egypt a place he'd never been before in all his long years. Many of the rest of them would no doubt have been daunted by it too. But what a difference it would make to know that the one who ruled in that land at the king's right hand was their brother. And he was just waiting to welcome them in. And as a a Christian, even as a Christian, you may have apprehensions about the day of your death. Looking forward to to heaven, hopefully, but, but, but apprehensive. But does it not help our apprehensions to know that our brother is already there? He has gone ahead of us and he cannot wait to welcome us in. And until that day... Remember, what's happening to you doesn't mean that God's plan has gone wrong. And no matter what happens, God will be with you. Amen. Well, we've we've thought tonight about a God who doesn't leave his people in their old age. And that's what we're going to praise him for now in Psalm 71. Uh, Psalm number 71, it's verses 10 to 14 on page 153. Uh, So the page number down at the bottom is 153, Psalm number 71, and it's the verses 10 through to 14. Uh, So 10, 11 and 12 at the bottom of page 153, and then 13 and 14 over the page. Verse 12 is a verse that by God's grace here, uh, the children among us can can sing uh, and know that it's true, along with many of us who are older as well. Verse 12 at the bottom of 153. For even from my youth, O God, I have been taught by you, and to this day I do declare the wonders that you do. And then verse 13 over the page is a prayer that all of us can pray and the confidence that all of us can have. O God, I ask, forsake me not when I am old and grey, or older and greyer. And so we do not need to fear tonight because God promises to be with us just as he would be with Jacob, just as he had been with him during these 130 years of his life. He's another Uh, 14 or so years left in Egypt. And even though he's in a a totally different place, a place he's never been before, God is with him. And he has that confidence because God comes to him and tells him, gives him the most frequent command in the Bible, do not be afraid. And he reassures him with the most frequent promise in the Bible, I will be with you. Do not be afraid because I am with you. So Psalm 71 10 through 14 and we'll stand if you're able to sing praise let's praise God